I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Katie Powell, an author, speaker, and teacher from the state of Indiana who has a great book that's titled Boredom Busters, Transform Worksheets, Lectures, and Grading into Engaging Meaningful Learning Experiences. This is a great book, and you can, of course, buy it wherever books are sold. You also want to check out Katie's website and her blog at teachbeyondthedesk.com for free and easy-to-use lesson plans that will truly help you create better student engagement in your classroom. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to encourage all of our listeners to sign up for the new weekly Reimagine Schools e-newsletter, where you will find exclusive show notes and resources to help you truly create better schools for kids. You can find the link on my Twitter page at Dr. Greg Goins, or you can find the link on the website at reimaginedschools.net. As always, folks, please share out episodes on social media, and we want to hear from you. So use that Reimagine Schools hashtag and give us some feedback on what you think about particular shows and tell us who your favorite guests have been. Most importantly, share this episode in your schools with teachers and colleagues and even school administrators, as we all want to spread the message of creating better schools for kids. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Katie Powell as we talk about boredom busters and how to create more engaging opportunities for kids in the classroom. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Have another great guest for you today. She is a teacher, and she's also the author of a great new book called Boredom Busters. We welcome in Katie Powell. How are you, Katie? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, I love the book, and I love the concept. Maybe let's just start with a little bit of your background as a classroom teacher. And I know this book is from the great line of Dave Burgess Consulting Books. So where did this um, epiphany kind of hit you? that we have to do better job engaging students? Um, well, I started my teaching career in special education. So I was a middle school special education teacher. Um, and then after that, I was a middle school title one teacher. So early in my career, my whole job was supporting the needs of students with diverse learning needs, um, especially those who weren't necessarily finding success in the traditional classroom setting. So um, I found myself needing to be very creative um, especially some of my students, by the time I had them in, you know, maybe seventh grade, they'd been struggling in school for a long time. So they felt discouraged. They felt like school wasn't a place where they belonged. They felt like traditional academic work was um, not suited for them. Um, so I found that I had to kind of uh, hide the learning and things that didn't feel like traditional classwork. Um, and it worked very well. 
Um, so of course, then all of the wisdom I had as a new energetic, passionate teacher was that everyone should teach the way I teach. If it's working for my students, all of you should be doing it. Um, and that didn't work well at all um, for a number of reasons. First, that didn't respect my colleagues as wonderfully creative professionals who are proficient in their own classrooms and their own teaching styles. And second, based on that, it didn't value their own teaching styles and what they were bringing as the experts in their own classrooms. So um, the activities that are in the Boredom Buster book were really designed to respect where teachers are um, at, with their own comfort level and their own teaching style. So I tried to look at some things that are universal and that are typically not sources of high engagement. So when you think about worksheets, the average classroom teacher is relying pretty heavily on worksheets. When you think about how students practice work, what's the average homework assignment, it's often a handout of some kind. But these are not things that feel engaging to the average student, especially those that struggle. When you think about lecture, well, that's something a lot of us still rely pretty heavily on, but it's not typically holistically engaging, especially to a struggling student. Um, grading homework in class, a lot of kids zone out. You know, it's something we do because we have to. We've got to stay on top of the grading and, and provide that quick turnaround. But boy, that's a lot of class time going to someone calling out answers. So I looked at things that are fairly universal to the average classroom experience and tried to find ways to um, engage students in meaningful learning in ways that didn't feel like boring seat work. And I tried to make sure that they were scalable and adaptable so teachers with diverse learning styles could find ways to apply them in their own classroom. And that was kind of the genesis of the Boredom Busters. Well, I love the name of the book. The name of the book is Boredom Busters Transfer Worksheets, Lectures, and Grading into Engaging Meaningful Learning Experiences. And so I, I guess the most logical place to start is why are kids bored in the classroom? And I really have two theories that I'll share with you, and I want to get your take. Uh, you know, I spent 15 years as a school district superintendent. I've been a principal, a classroom teacher myself. And, and really, kids um, are either – as things get more challenging, they get frustrated and they kind of pull away. So maybe things are easy in first grade, but second and third grade is a little more difficult and it's not as fun uh, when things get more challenging. And the other end of that spectrum is you have kids that maybe are so far ahead. Maybe you have a second grader that really reads at a fifth or sixth grade level and, and they get bored because other kids have to catch up. And that's really the premise of differentiated instruction. But we know if you have 25 kids in a classroom, you're really at 25 different places. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. And there's a lot of research that shows the drop off, how kids feel about school and how much they like school. And they self-report very high, very positive feelings early in their education. And it starts to tank. And by the time they reach the middle grades, it's pretty low. And I think you're right. I think there's the connection between feeling too challenged and feeling unsuccessful, you know, the zone of proximal development that some kids are, what they're encountering as far as their content is just so far beyond where they already are that it's not attainable um, without a lot of effort. And not all students are intrinsically motivated. Not all kids are motivated by grades. And those that are, are already sitting in our classroom successful. Really, the concern is those that aren't. And, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about reimagining schools, and obviously we're moving toward a lot of the, the soft skills, the four C's. We're looking at design thinking principles, project-based learning. I mean, just for the sake of full disclosure in this conversation, and my listeners know this, I've never been a huge fan of a lot of seat work, especially at the lower grade. Uh, workshops, uh, I mean, worksheets have always kind of had a negative connotation in my mind, but I'm also uh, aware of the fact that a lot of that drill is necessary and does still take place. So 
kudos to you for recognizing the fact that we, we have to continue to do those things, but maybe there's a better way of doing it. Right. I mean, the reality is I'm not a worksheet driven teacher either. Um, and it was easy for me to innovate and find other ways to reach my students. But when I looked at my average content area colleagues, many of them at the textbook series, the school adopted as a whole, you know, thing of black line masters. And there's, you know, questions that kids are supposed to answer at the end of the chapter. And a lot of teachers feel very um, heavily dependent on those kinds of resources. And when we talk about project-based learning, some people feel very comfortable jumping into those kinds of things. Other people are wondering, well, what page of my textbook is that on? So, you know, when we look at supporting the needs of you know, our colleagues in our profession, those that are comfortable innovating already are. So what do we do for those who aren't? For the good of our students and the fact that everybody does need to, lear to learn and they deserve to learn in, in really meaningful ways, you know, we need to support our teachers to be able to do that well. And there's no one size fits all. There's no one best practice. It's best practices. Yeah, and one of the things I like about the book is, is you really kind of talk about I think there's this huge misconception that there's going to be so much extra planning and preparation to have all these engaging lessons. And uh, really, and, and I'll let you speak to this. I'm just kind of paraphrasing what I've got from reading some excerpts from the book. But you really have everything you need right there in the classroom. You just have to, the approach has to be different. That's exactly right. Um, that was the other side of the activities I developed for board and busters. Um, you know, I myself, I'm a, uh, you know, a teacher and I'm a parent and, you know, I've got a family. Um, I have some health limitations where, you know, my energy is tanked by the end of the day and everything. So um, there are some really great ideas that take, you know, maybe you decorate your classroom and you, you really set the scene or, you know, maybe you put together something that's got a bunch of manipulatives that have to be laminated and cut apart. And those are great when we can make them happen. But can we really make that kind of instruction happen every day? And the reality is, no, we can't. Our, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough time. Many of us are buying things under our own dime. So how do we respect? our time and our money, and um, really our families, that when we do leave the classroom at the end of the day, we try to be present with our families. Uh, so many of the activities in Boredom Busters require no extra materials. It's just using questions or vocabulary sets you would already use. Um, and then the ones that use kind of fun, unexpected materials are all things that are cheap and easy to obtain. You know, a bag of ball pit balls, you get 100 of them and you've spent less than 10 bucks and you can use them for, you know, a dozen things. So trying to make sure that everything can go a long way without a whole lot of money or preparation. And Katie has a fantastic website. It's uh, teachbeyondthedesk.com. She writes a blog there. You can also find her on Twitter, uh, beyond underscore the underscore desk. So we're using the beyond the desk theme there. So you want to follow her on Twitter and check out the website. The thing that I really liked about the website is, and you know this all too well, whenever you talk about making any kind of change in the classroom, teachers automatically go to show me the blueprint, show me how to do this. And your website is fantastic because it's broken down into several categories and you actually give suggestions on how to do things. So can you talk about kind of the thought process in rolling out that website and just giving people some answers? Sure. Um, early in my career, if I wasn't sure how to teach something or what resource to use to, to address a standard or a needed skill, I'd go to my colleagues and they'd open their file cabinet. And you know, that file cabinet, it was almost like, you know, a movie prop. It's like it opened far further than the file cabinet should be allowed to go and it was stuffed full of things. And they would just hand me resources to use. No one ever asked me to go buy something or to go prepare something on my own. I was well supported. And so when I started to develop these activities and first present them at workshops, I wanted to be able to basically give people my, my virtual filing cabinet. 
I wanted to be able to say, well, here's what's worked for me. And here's maybe where you can go with it. And I wanted it to be accessible. Um, and at this point, I've kept it all free on the website. Yeah, the book costs money. And if you want to buy the book, you can. But you can also access the website free because I believe in respecting my colleagues the same way I was respected early in my career with, well, here are some resources. Let's do this together. It's not about making my name great or, you know, filling my wallet. It's instead about the good of the kids we serve. And if something I found works for someone else, I'd like them to be able to have it and use it. Um, I'm not a web designer, so this has stretched me to be able to figure out how to do this. I really appreciate the tools that are available, like I use Wix, and okay, so it's pretty user-friendly, I could put this together. Um, and, you know, early when I was first kind of presenting these ideas, um, I wasn't really sure if there was going to be a market for it. Maybe I was just putting it together to keep myself organized, but I've been doing this long enough and, and with enough people coming that I do know that there is a, a market for them, so to speak, that they have found a niche. And yeah, I, I love the way that you have it really broken down into uh, worksheet busters, homework busters, lecture busters, content specific, and then the tips and the blog. Um, you know, some of my favorites were, I was just kind of going through looking, uh, you know, in preparing for this conversation, but things like the six degrees of separation, the recipe cards, uh, just things that are fun for kids to do. Can you kind of talk about the fun factor and how you can make some of these things that are just Sometimes they get humdrum and, and we call them boring as the book uh, is so well titled, but how, do, how can we make some of these things more exciting? It's a good question. Um, I say often in my presentations that fun isn't the goal. I wasn't hired to be fun. Um, fun is not a, on the state standards. It's not part of my contract. And I do a disservice to my, my job, my contracted responsibility, if I make fun my primary goal. Um, I apologize for the announcement. We're in my classroom. Um, but the reality is fun is a very powerful tool to leverage. So when something is fun, it releases happy chemicals in the brain that we know are conducive to a positive um, brain mindset for learning. Um, novelty and curiosity help kids buy in. They're excited to be a part of it. They like to be curious. It piques their interest. So they've already got the buy-in. Um, so a lot of the activities that I developed try to use fun as the tool that brings kids in then for the deep, meaningful learning. You know, I know we're supposed to make our, our standards really clear and obvious, our objectives, and yes, I do that, but I don't necessarily let them know where we're going the moment I release something. You know, if they come in and I've got a giant, you know, plastic sheet of some kind on the floor and there's, you know, colors marked on it, I don't necessarily tell them what we're doing right at first because I want that curiosity. I want them to wonder about it. I want it to seem weird. That makes it memorable. Um, and then later, you know, like you mentioned, say six degrees of separation, they go sit down with an assessment and they're asked about like viscosity. Okay, so don't you remember when, you know, that's when you connected viscosity to, I don't know, Marco Polo or something seemingly unconnected. And those little memory hooks help them retrieve that information later when they need it. Uh, so it works. Yeah, and another really cool thing that, um, that you do is uh, obviously technology is, is a big part of the Gen Z um, group of kids that we have in our classrooms today. And you use things like hashtag it and meme me. And, and what's really cool about those two things is these are things that you're modeling as a part of professional development with adults there in the building. Can you talk about both, uh, you know, people are going to be listening to this podcast looking for big ideas. And those were two that jumped out at me is, is using the meme me approach and the hashtag it approach. Can you talk about both those? Sure. So the premise behind meme me um, is, you know, I, I've got a 10 year old son and a 12 year old son and they like speak in memes. 
you know, my 10 year old at the end of the day, he wants to show me the latest memes and they watch memes now on YouTube. I don't know when they went from a static image to a video, but they all call them memes now. Um, and so it's really something that a lot of kids of this age um, nowadays find very, very engaging. It's how they communicate with each other. They post them online. It's a thing. And for those people who don't know, a meme is usually an image with some kind of text. And usually the caption doesn't go with the original image. It's being used in kind of maybe a sarcastic or an unexpected way. So with Meme Me, you um, imagine a, a meme that someone would have maybe shared to social media or created to represent maybe an event in the book you're reading. Or um, if you're reading about an, a time in history, you know, like George Washington, um, you know, crossing the Delaware, what's a meme he would have posted at the end of that day. So it helps connect our content to you know, a natural leverage point with modern kids. And the same with hashtag it, they're creating a, a hashtag that describes either their learning or the content or that a figure from that lesson would have shared on their social media account. Um, one thing I really like about that is it's not something they can just go find in their notes or their textbook. They really do have to generate the meaning out of it, which means they have to take the, the rote content or skill that we've shared with them and they have to extend it to their own understanding, which we know is really important for long-term um, you know, memory and recall and being able to actually use a skill in the long term, they have to be able to construct their own meaning out of it. It can't just be something they're pulling from their notes or their textbook. And what kind of feedback do you get from teachers that uh, use some of these strategies from not only the book, but the website in their classroom? Uh, my guess is, I know you do a lot of speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you have a lot of teachers share great stories with you when you're, yeah. when you're out and about. But uh, my guess would be just the enthusiasm that the kids show just because they're doing something to kind of pique their interest. Yeah, uh, the feedback is very positive. And maybe that's just because people are really nice to me and they aren't reaching out to me when something fails miserably. But so far, um, and I've been doing this a number of years, but the feedback is very, very positive. Um, and we speak very honestly in the book and very honestly in the sessions about sometimes trying new things does fail. You know, that doesn't mean it's a bum idea or that you've, you know, somehow failed as an educator. It's all feedback. So it's about finding the right fit for your instructional style and your students as well. Um, but there are um, a couple of teachers at a school in Ohio, first and I believe second grade, that are using these with their students. And I actually got to Skype with the students last week and talk to them about some of what they're doing in their class. And it's just so exciting. And they share pictures with me on social media. And it's so great to get to see not just a teacher feeling empowered with good ideas, but then the end result is that students are excited about their learning. Um, there are college classes using these with their pre-service teachers. Um, you know, my friend Erin that I know through our AMLE conference circuit, she uses these with her students. I even reference her in the book. And one of the coolest things um, that I love to see when people share out what's happening in their classrooms on social media is how, you know, the, the basic kernel of an idea I shared then gets adapted and reimagined to be just the right fit for a teacher and their students. And the new ideas that they come up with and the new ways they apply it and how it becomes a springboard or even um, like used with some other things, like there are some teachers using board and busters with the edu protocols and that those you know various ideas work together very, very well, um, that people are becoming inspired and empowered to do their own brand of awesome. And I think that is absolutely amazing. That's my favorite part. And I know there are great suggestions for teachers at all grade levels and at all years of experience, but uh, I, my mind automatically went to pre-service teachers and newer teachers that are often afraid to take a risk to try something new uh, just out of a fear of failure. Uh, and, you know, again, too many times beginning teachers, uh, you know, they're very textbook driven and uh, they really don't show a lot of flexibility until 
they had that aha moment and realized that they can try some different things. So what do you say to that demographic of teachers, those pre-service teachers and new teachers that uh, really need some help? I would also think stuff like this would vastly improve classroom management if you have kids more engaged. Yeah. Um, well, to speak to that first, you know, one of the, the primary primary fears people express when we talk about this in conference sessions is the fear of loss of control. And I remind teachers, okay, first these strategies were developed for the students who aren't successful in the traditional classroom setting and the traditional, you know, classroom activities. So we know this motivates them. We know this is engaging to them. The second I'd ask you, how well are those students behaving right now anyway? So if they're already your students you're struggling with, why not risk something in the attempt to reach them? Um, and so if the teacher is uncertain with trying any new idea, whether mine or someone else's, my recommendation would be to start small. Pick one idea, one class or one activity, and keep it small. Maybe you run it for five to 10 minutes, and you try it, and then you reflect. And look at what worked, what didn't. Look at your own comfort level with it. Where did you find yourself feeling like you're losing your mind? Where did you find yourself feeling stressed? Where did you find instead that you were noticing students light up with excitement? And seek feedback from the students. Even very young kids can give us very effective, very realistic feedback about what they liked and what didn't and what worked and what didn't. So if you start small, even if it fails, you failed for five minutes. You failed for one thing. And I also recommend don't like introduce a brand new concept for the very first time with a very new idea. Save it for, okay, maybe a review activity before you do some kind of assessment. So that way students learning isn't going to be jeopardized if somehow there's a failure on our part when we deploy a new idea. So start safe and just workshop it. See what happens and reflect. Um, in the book, I do have a series of questions to kind of recommend people to walk through. When you try something and it does fail, how do you unpack that and figure out what the failure means? The vast majority of the time, we don't feel miserably when we try a new idea. Instead, we find that there were small hiccups and bumps in the road, and those are very fixable. Um, but we fear abject failure. And honestly, even that's feedback. So let's unpack that together. Let's not be afraid of it. And one important thing for all of us to remember is that we have students in our classrooms who feel like they're risking failure every day. And we expect that of them. They're sitting there with content standards that are challenging for them. Every time we call on them, every time they produce work, they're risking failure. So here we are as successful adults who are afraid of that, and perhaps we need to be more empathetic to what that feels like for our own students. And that's very well said and, and a great point. And, you know, a lot of the things I'm seeing now on social media, and, and again, that's where a lot of great ideas are. If you're not on Twitter, you need to be in that space because it will make you such a better educator if you participate in a Twitter chat or just connect with people like Katie Powell. Connect with Katie and, and she'll be glad to help you, as will I. But, you know, I'm seeing things like digital escape rooms mm -hmm. uh, and different ways to kind of, uh, you know, get kids excited about different classroom activities. Uh, you just tweeted not too long ago. Um, uh, you saw a class using a new app called Gimkit. Uh, yeah. I think was I think it was even designed by a high school student, and it's oh, wow. a game show app. So there are some really cool things out there. We've talked about some of my favorites. What are some of your favorites? Um, I use technology all the time in class. We're a one-to-one -one school, so we have these wonderful Chromebooks. Um, and I use it as a very natural, holistic tool. I mean, I can differentiate from my students so much more easily when I can push things out to devices where everyone's working at the same time, but the work they've received is targeted specifically to their needs. Um, some of my favorite tools right now, I really like Actively Learn. Um, it's a really engaging reading website where they've got high quality text already on there, or you can import your own. It embeds questions and unlocks the text as they answer each question. 
so they aren't seeing the entire text at a time, just the piece to work with. They get immediate feedback on their answers. Um, and then when they do an open-ended question, it comes to my device and I can very quickly score it and push feedback and allow them to revise it. And then it unlocks their um, uh, classmates' responses so they can even see exemplars from their classmates. And I really like the immediate feedback and it's highly engaging to my students. And the surprising thing is it's not a game. So, you know, often when we think of engaging technology, we think of games. And I do plenty of those. I've got GimKit and I've got Kahoot and, you know, quizzes and Quizlet Live and Flashcard Factory. We do all of that. But that doesn't have to be, the engaging doesn't have to be the bells and whistles of games. It's also how they can actually interact with the text or the text and the content. Um, so actively learn is one we use often. I also use um, Pear Deck as our like class presentation format. So it lets me send interactive slides that the students respond to. And one thing I really like about Pear Deck and really appreciate that they've been doing is they have um, SEL templates on their, their product. So it integrates with Google Slides. So you make a Google Slide and it becomes interactive. And they have pre-made SEL check-ins. And so I start my bell ringer every day with some kind of SEL check-in just to find out where my students are, kind of take the temperature of the room and give them the opportunity to kind of self-report how they're feeling. And, you know, we've been working with Dr. Lori DeSatel on, you know, trauma-informed practices. And um, we have a grant to be working with the Second Step program and kind of try that out this year. And so it's been uh, a really big, important push for us. And I really appreciate the opportunity to use one service for my entire instructional deployment, like everything we're doing, all of my directions, all of my, you know, student response slides, and my SEL slides can all be in one service. Uh, and it's free and easy to use. You know, I'm a huge advocate, and I'm sure you are too, for things like student voice mm -hmm. and uh, giving kids more choice and letting them work on passion projects. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, if I was a third grade teacher and, and I read the book, I go to your website, maybe I connect with you on Twitter, and I have all these wonder, wonderful ideas, I'm trying to figure out where to start. And probably the best place to start is just ask the kids, kind of give them opportunities to kind of weigh in and let them tell you what they want to do, maybe even give them some of these choices. Can you talk about that process? I know it sounds messy, but I think it can also be a, a valuable learning experience, especially for young teachers. That's a good point. Um, we know that student agency is very, very important, and especially I teach young adolescents, and we know it's really one of their primary needs. Um, and I think that's one of the things we fear the most is letting go of control and handing it over to the students but it's also very, very powerful. So that's a very good question. And I was listening to your question and wondering, so maybe a teacher is curious about trying out some strategies, whether boredom busters or some others, what about sending the students to a website like mine or, or another person's and letting them explore? And Okay, write your thoughts. You know, what are a few activities that sounded interesting to you? Why do you think so? Which ones were you not draw drawn to and why? And kind of seek their feedback. Um, in my class, I kind of roll out some of the boredom busters the same way I would any classroom procedure. So early in the year, I do, you know, one small activity of maybe hungry hippos or um, paper airplanes or musical desks, and we introduce them little by little, and they become classroom routines just like anything else. So when I say hungry hippos, they know what that means. Um, and so that gives me the opportunity later in the year to be like, all right, so we would like to review the chapters we've just read which activity would you like to use and seek some of that input from them? And that way we're speaking the same language, I guess, about these activities. So um, talk a little bit about whenever that big box of books arrives at your house for the first time and, and you see the cover and yeah. you see your name on it as a published author. And, you know, now it's a real deal. Mm -hmm. um, how has it really kind of changed your approach to day-to-day -to -day teaching and working with teachers now that the book's available? 
Um, it's a, a good question and honestly kind of a hard one to answer. I can tell you the moment the books arrived, um, you know, the Dave Burgess Publishing, they like us to, to post an unboxing video. So mine's on my website and it's still on my social media. And um, I had my children unbox it with me. And when I started writing the book, they wrote their stories too. They love to write. So we would write together and it became a family event and they want to be writers someday as well. And they've got these really awesome stories they've been working on for years. And it was important for me to model risk-taking for them. If I had a big dream and I never did anything about it, when they have their big dreams, what do they think that means? Well, it's just something you dream. You don't do anything about it. So when I took the risk of reaching out and trying to publish this book, I knew I was risking rejection and it was scary and I didn't know what I was doing. I'm a first time author. Um, so when I got my, the offer of a contract, the first person I told were my kids. Um, when the boxes came, the first people to open it with me were my children because I wanted to share this with them and model risk taking and, and dream shot thinking and uh, moonshot thinking and why we do this. Um, now, when you ask about how it's impacted me as a teacher, um, in many ways, it hasn't. I still feel like Katie Powell, sixth grade teacher. And when people in my world here at school ask me about my book, it's almost hard to talk about it. Because when I go out and speak at schools, I'm coming as author Katie Powell. When I go out and present at conferences, I'm author Katie Powell here. I'm Mrs. Powell, sixth grade teacher. And it's almost easier to just keep walls <laughs> between those roles in my life because um, I, I don't feel like some kind of bigger expert than any of my colleagues. When I first started applying to present at conferences, I kept the, the request for um, submissions, you know, proposals open on my desktop for days. And I kept thinking, but I'm not one of those people. I kept thinking of the big names and I'm not, I'm just a classroom teacher. Um, so I still in many ways don't feel any different than I ever have. I am still just Katie Powell classroom teacher and I happen to have written a book. Now, I will say, because I teach reading and writing, I do talk about the reality of the writing process with my students because I now have gone through it. And I know that my editing team sent comments on a Google Doc version of my, you know, my um, book. So I know that that's a real process. So we can be modeling that and experiencing that in class, just like real authors. And so I can talk to the fact that writing the book is almost the easy part. The revising and editing that comes after that to actually make it a published product is where the real sweat comes in. And I don't know that I knew that going into this. And I want my students to see that too. Yeah, you wrote your essay. That does not mean you're done. We have just as much work to do on this side of it before we call it a finished published piece. And that's something I can really actually speak to with some authority now. And, you know, another change for you and for all first-time authors is promotion is a big part of, of this piece as well. Obviously, we want people to buy the book. Uh, it's a great resource. Every teacher should have it. But what is the uh, three-minute elevator speech? There are a lot of great books out there. Why should teachers, um, you know, invest in boredom busters? Uh, that's also a hard question to answer because I'm not very good at self-promotion. I really would rather promote teachers than promote my book. So on social media, I spend much more time celebrating the cool things other teachers are doing in their class than promoting my book. If people want to buy it, that's great. And I can happily explain what the book is. So if they're curious, they've got an idea what they're buying. But in no ways am I saying this is the book all teachers should buy because it's just not. It's a matter of finding what works for you. But Boredom Busters is an excellent place to start for a teacher who knows you know, we live in a, a culture now, a teacher culture of being evaluated all the time. So they're sitting down with an administrator with a rubric where they score and maybe they see that student engagement is an area they need to improve. Or maybe they are a creative teacher, but they're exhausting themselves. 
You know, I talked in the book about the Thursday problem. So what about those days when you have already given your creative ideas to your unit, you have already given your best stuff, but you still have to keep going. What do you do on those days? And Boredom Busters is a resource you can use to, with very low prep or no prep at all, have a really engaging, valuable, meaningful activity um, that's going to work for your students and it's going to work for you and allow you to teach within your own teaching style and any content with no expenditure of money, you know, no buying of resources um, that is actually going to work for both you and your students. It's a safe place to start whether you're uncomfortable with engagement or whether that's already one of the things you're good at and you're just exhausting yourself. So my whole goal really is to equip and empower teachers to be their own kind of awesome in their classrooms. That's really where it counts. So I can be the hype man for you folks. Uh, there are a lot of superintendents, principals, classroom teachers out there. You want to take the time and invest in boredom busters. I think it's going to be a great read for you. I was also sitting here thinking this might be a great book study for, you know, I could see a, a wing of teachers, maybe fourth grade teachers want to get together and, and use this as a book study. The thing I really like about what you're doing, Katie, and, uh, I think this is so important. It, it's really all about big ideas. And you have a lot of these big ideas right there on the website. People listening to this podcast right now, jump on the website, teachbeyondthedesk.com. And tomorrow you can roll out a lot of these great ideas. So Katie, great job uh, with the book. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. That's a wrap for this episode, folks. Again, I want to thank Katie Powell for being here, classroom teacher and author. You want to check out the book. You certainly want to follow her on social media. And as always, folks, as we wrap it up, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.